Good morning, church. Morning. <laughs> it's amazing how many people come when it's this cold. It's incredible. And uh, so it's great to have you here. And, uh, you know, uh, we missed the choir. This is their second week that they're not on. And they, they got a two-week break. And they've done such a fantastic job for us. And we're just very excited that they'll be back next week again. But the worship team was just fantastic again today. And I just appreciate how all these people uh, lead us into worship and do such a wonderful job in, their, in, in such a humble way. And uh, we're thankful to the Lord about that. Uh, Christmas offering. Anybody want to know what happened there? Or should we just move on? <laughs> you you want to know? Okay. Um, the last service didn't. And uh, no, they, they did. Last year, above our tithes and offerings, our regular offerings, it was 800 and 22,000, just shy of the 822,000 mark. And this year, it was 829,000. Isn't that pretty neat? And yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's, that's something to get excited about. And uh, of course, that's going for those four, uh, you know, those four missions that we, we launched that we talk about all the time, Tupandani in Africa there in U Uganda. And and our summer camp, and um, four winds, and uh, these kinds of things. And so we're very excited about what God is doing through these, these, uh, these ministries that have been launched here. They're huge ministries. Uh, as I've said before, in many cases, they would, be, they would have their own separate boards, and they'd be run by some parachurch organization. And here they're all run under the umbrella of Southland. And that is so, so exciting. So thank you so much for your participation. You know, kids got involved. My, one of my grandsons, he called me, and he's, um, oh, shoot, I wish my wife was here. Um, uh, Travis, you're here. How old is Cohen? Seven. There we go. There, I knew they were here somewhere. He's uh, seven years old, and he, ph he phoned me. I was in the office, and he said, Papa, um, uh, I want to give to the Christmas offering. Can I shovel your driveway? And I said, sure, but what does that have to do with anything? He said, I want you to pay me. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, I thought I would uh, just, in, uh, this is the uh, month of prayer and fasting. And so to get started, I thought I would just introduce uh, just a few interesting uh, tidbits about some of the growth of prayer here at uh, Southland, as you, uh, as, as you know, and if you're a visitor, maybe you don't know, but if, if, any were, if anyone were to ask us, what do you think is a key for, you know, for the spiritual and the resulting numerical growth at Southland, there's many, it's a multifaceted answer. It's, it, I mean, you've, you've got to say many things that God has told us to do this or do that or change this, change that. And et cetera, et cetera. But if you were going to boil it, try to boil it down to one thing, shall we say the root of the matter, we would have to say it's prayer. Would you agree with that? Absolutely and completely. And so I thought, I, I just took some little facts out of my journal, <clears throat> some little historical uh, inf uh, data, and I thought I'd share it with you and throw it up on the um, uh, on, the, on the screen by way of intro to this uh, message on prayer and fasting. December the 15th, I, I started in January, but on, on December, uh, December the 15th, we launched uh, corporate prayer at Southland, and it was called Operation Prayer. April the 12th, 1998, we instituted pastors prayer partners, and Bill and Lori Rempel were the first coordinators. And it included people like, not just these, but these are the people that are still here these many, many years later. Paul and Sue Hebert, Jake Hebert, Wanda Blanchard, Martha Lowen, Marianne Lepp, and Fran Dirksen. March 1999, Grace Fast joined Prayer Partners and became the prayer, uh, pastor's prayer partner coordinator on, on uh, May the 30th, 2000. October 31st, 1999, I introduced Unison Prayer at Operation Prayer. We did it at the, what was then at, the, at the time, Lowen Funeral Home at, at the old building right across the street. How many, are there any, any here that were at those early prayer meetings at Operation Prayer? There's a number of you. That's amazing. And there was in the first service as well. And, uh, you know, we'd have uh, 25 people, 30 people, whatever. And uh, that's really, really exciting. 
uh, November the, and Bill Dick, who was the funeral director at the time, he, because it was Lone Funeral Home, he allowed us to use that place because we had gone to two services and now we needed a place to pray. So, and he, he just volunteered and allowed us to use it for nothing. And uh, so I, t- I remind him of that every time I see him. November the 21st, 1999, uh, we introduced the use of our bodies in worship and prayer, you know, kneeling and raising hands and that kind of stuff. But going back to that uh, unison prayer, I think I, I said something about that already, but uh, I remember friends, a friend coming to me after the first time we did it at Lone Funeral, and she said, I don't like unison prayer. She's such a D, you know. And she said, I don't like un- uh, unison prayer. I said, honey, why don't you like uh, unison prayer? She said, because I can't even think. All I can hear is Chris praying <laughs> at the top of his lungs. <laughs> and so she said, I just started going, amen, amen, amen. Whatever he says, I just, <laughs> amen. <laughs> uh, October the 22nd, 2000, Southland held its first Prayer Summit. Can you believe that, guys? And uh, here we're moving in 2014. We've, uh, we've finished uh, over 13 years of prayer summits. Uh, sep- uh, September 2004, we hired our first and only, I might add, pastor of prayer, Grace Fast. <clears throat> that was a big day for us. And to, to have seen that ministry now grow into its multifaceted, all the different prayer ministries that there are, about 265 volunteer ministers, trained volunteer ministers in, the, in our prayer ministry right now. Any of you here that are in Grace Fast Prayer Ministry, raise your hand. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. And, and then November 2004, I introduced Listening Prayer to Southland. That became a, a staple here. January 2005, we held our first annual month of prayer and fasting. So we're, this is our, we're beginning our 10th year of annual prayer and fasting on, in Januarys, And then on January the 2nd to 3rd, Grace Fast started <clears throat> 2010. She started our first post-service prayer ministry with trained prayer people. And that's right in our, in our big prayer room uh, next to the auditorium. And many people go from these services and they go right to the prayer meeting. They have ministered to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people uh, for a, a variety of matters. So <clears throat> I wanted to say this. Church doesn't just happen. Church doesn't just happen. If you were to ask what the key is, it's been prayer. And then I would add fasting, and you might ask, you, you may ask, why do you think prayer and fasting are so important? And that's what we're going to look at this morning, okay? And uh, so let's bow for a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll begin. And let's, uh, you know, why don't you just put your hands out like this and say, God, I, I, I really need to hear from you. I want you to open up my mind and my heart in this matter. And uh, show me, reveal to me, <clears throat> speak to me uh, what is so important to you about this matter. Lord, we ask by your spirit that you would, you would instruct our minds, that you would open up our hearts and minds as you did the early disciples. So that we can, that we can receive what you have for us this morning. In particular, this whole matter of prayer, which has been such a key here at Southland. We want to praise you and thank you for revealing that to us 18 years ago and making that such a staple. We want to thank you for the incalculable number of answers to prayer we have seen and the <clears throat> changed and transformed lives through this matter of prayer. Thank you for the many who have come to Christ through this uh, avenue of prayer. And this morning, we ask you to reinvigorate us about this matter of prayer. Inspire us about this matter of prayer. Where we have, where we have just kind of gone a little cool on this matter of prayer, we pray that you would stoke the fires of our hearts on this matter of prayer. <clears throat> and take us as a church and as individuals to a whole new level in this matter of prayer. And we want to thank you for what you're going to do this month, but not just January, but for the remainder of this year. In Jesus' name, and everybody agreed by saying. Well, this, uh, this message is, um, <laughs> it started off being a message on prayer and fasting, and then I, I found it was too big, and I lopped off fasting. Some of you will be very happy about that. 
Um, but if you come next week, I'll, I'll, uh, I will be addressing it. And then I had five parts to the prayer thing, and it was so long that I started cutting out a bunch of that till finally I was left with only two main points. And at that, it was all that we could handle. So uh, here we go. Prayer allows God's power to flow through you. Remember the story of in, uh, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they both record the story, and the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they were up on, on a mountain with Jesus, and they met Moses, and they met uh, Elijah, and uh, Jesus was transfigured before them, and the, the disciples say, well, Peter, yeah, he, he just liked the mountaintop experience so much, he wanted to build some booths there, so that they could just stay there, and Jesus finally said, you know what, it's, uh, it's time to come down off the mountain, and, and we, we need to go down into the valley of misery. We got to go where the people are, and we've got to minister to them. And uh, as they did, a man approached Jesus, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire, and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Jesus then rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Remember that story? Recorded exactly like that in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Then Jesus' disciples came to him privately, and they asked him, why could we not cast it out, that demon, out of the boy? He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if, you're, uh, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, what's this? let's stop for a moment and take a look. What's this mountain that he's referring to? Well, there, uh, if two rabbis or authorities debated the Torah, uh, you know, the, uh, Moses, the books of Moses, with opposing views, people would say things like, my mountain will crush your mountain. Okay? Jeremiah, uh, and we see it throughout the Old Testament, the way that word, that metaphor is used. And it's often used of God's enemies or of Israel's enemies or of uh, the authorities or the leaders of a nation that is an enemy. <clears throat> for example, just one example, Jeremiah 51 says, I will repay Babylon for all the evil that they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O destroying, what's the word? Mountain. See that? In this case, the mountain or the enemy authority or leader that needs to be removed in the, in the case of the boy was a demonic spirit. And uh, that's what Jesus is referring to here, this demonic power of, that was afflicting the boy. And we know that this is a problem throughout our world ever since the Genesis 3.15 that we were talking about a few weeks ago. But in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? Help me. Rulers and against? And against? Dark world. And against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I want to ask you, are you facing a mountain in your personal life, or your marriage, or your children, or your ministry in some way? How many of you have come here this morning with a mountain in your life? Raise your hands. Ooh, there's a lot of mountains here. It was in the first service, too. We faced, uh, I'm talking about Fran and I, we faced a mountain when we had uh, two teenagers far from God some years back. Um, pastoring Southland for the last 18 years has been one continuous struggle after another because there are powers and principalities and rules, uh, rulers of the, uh, of the air who are opposing us, true? We, it isn't just flesh and blood. There's something real happening. And this past Tuesday, one hour before the prayer summit, uh, just, uh, just before I was, uh, I was about to come out, I received an email concerning something in church renewal that I can't, that I can't talk about publicly right now, but it, that absolutely rocked me. It shook me. You know, if you were here at the prayer summit, you didn't know that. Uh, an hour later when I came out. And uh, through, as we spent time in prayer, everything just, you know, God took care of that. But it rocked me. We, we are in a war. There are mountains in the way that have to be moved. Would you agree? There's people that need to be set free. There's people that need to be saved. There's, 
There's things that need to be changed. And, uh, we, and he called them mountains. Now, if we go back to Matthew 17, verse 20, Jesus said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, in this case it was a demon, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible to you. That's what he says. In the amp I, I like what the amplified, amplified version says about this because it captures the idea. It's not a, a word for word translation. But it cap he, the, the translation captures the idea a little better than most of them. Faith that is living. He said, if you had faith that is living like a small mustard seed. What does he mean by that? This version captures that idea. The mustard seed flourished anyway, anywhere. It's, a, it was, it's almost weed-like in, uh, in Palestine. Or in Israel, I should say. It's almost weed-like. And uh, it flourishes everywhere. Like a weed, it can grow up in rocky soil or beside roadsides and, and hard places, hard-packed places. That thing flourishes. Have you ever seen plants like that? You know, you can't get your flowers to grow and, and you nurture and love them and everything. But these weeds, they grow anywhere. Isn't it true? And not only that, as they grow, they start to push the rocks aside. Uh, one of the ways that we see it here is, uh, I remember... My parents, when we were growing up on 3rd Street, and they had these towering, very, very tall poplar trees. They had these, these massive uh, uh, root systems, and they went and they actually pushed in the foundation uh, of our home so that it was at an angle like this. It was absolutely incredible. It just breaks right through. That's what he's talking about. And he said, if you have a faith a faith that is like a living mustard seed, just a little tiny seed that lives, then, you, then it'll get into even hard places, places that you're having a very difficult time, and it's going to push and remove those rocks and those mountains in your life. That's what, he, that's what he's saying. Jesus was saying that when we do that, that's what happens. And the authorities and the enemies that stand in our way, they get moved. But Jesus said the disciples had a problem. So we know now what, the mountain, uh, what kind of mountains he was talking about in this particular case. We know what he was talking about now with the mustard seed. It's got to be like a living mustard seed that just grows and starts to push things out of the way and grows in very difficult places. And that's what you're facing, some difficult things. But, what did, uh, but, but then Jesus says that the disciples had a problem. He said they had little faith. He didn't say they had no faith. That would be in Greek the apistos, ah, no, pistos, faith. He said they, uh, they had oligoch pistos, meaning a defective faith. There was a faith there, but it was defective. It wasn't living. It wasn't moving anything. It wasn't growing for some reason. So what was the problem with the disciples? Why couldn't they drive out this demon? It's not that they didn't have faith. They actually expected to exercise, to remove the demon. Is that not true? Is it true, church? Yeah. They actually tried to remove the, the demon or exorcise him. They had long been successful in this work. Jesus had sent them out to do this very thing way back. This wasn't the first time they had confronted a demon. This wasn't the first time. In Mark chapter uh, 6 verse 7, uh, Jesus had sent them to do that very thing, and they had been successful. Take a look what it says in verse 13 of Mark. It says they, referring to the disciples there, drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Ever think about that? Ever think about that? Here, they can't move, they can't exorcise this one demon, they can't move this one mountain, this one rule and principality of the air to set this young little boy free. They can't do it. But they had been very successful in doing it before. But now it didn't work. Why? The reason can't be that it wasn't God's will, Jesus, because we know that because Jesus was actually upset at them for not being able to do it. He said, you know, uh, you've got little faith. This, 
This defective faith or shoddy faith is what he was talking about. Besides, it is always God's will to fight the enemy and set people free. We know that. Well, we get the clue to the answer in Mark's telling of the same story. If you go to, the, uh, if you go to Mark chapter 9, you have this exact same story. Everything reads exactly the same until you get to the part where the disciples ask him. They say, why couldn't we remove him? It's at that point where Jesus gives a different answer. You say, oh, it's a contradiction in the Bible. No, it's not a contradiction. Uh, there's two reporters, two journalists standing here, and they are reporting different things that they heard. The fact that they didn't report everything that was said, that's just like we have journalists today. One picks this piece and talks about that, and one picks that piece and talks about that, but it doesn't mean that they're contradictory. They just say one is discussing this and one is discussing this. But Jesus said both of these things. So Mark records a different part of Jesus' answer, and this is what he records. He says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but by prayer. Oh, isn't that interesting? It, Matthew records the part where Jesus was evidently talking about their faith. You, gotta have, you can't have a defective faith, but if you have the right kind of faith that is like a living mustard seed, it's going gonna, it's gonna to root in the hardest place and it's going to move it. And in this place, he says, it's by prayer. This kind of thing does not come out by prayer. He's talking about the, it's in the same story. It's the same, it's the same event that's uh, taking place. Isn't that interesting? Prayer? What did he mean by that? And what did, it, what did that have to do with faith? Well, the disciples had received a gift from Jesus to drive out demons, as we already uh, saw. And he, it says he called the twelve, began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And, as we saw, it actually worked. They drove out many demons. But the disciples had been tempted to think that this gift was in their control and could be exercised at their disposal. It, it encouraged them to trust in themselves rather than in God. They had to learn that their previous success in expelling demons provided no guarantee of continued power. It's a little like people, they go to a conference, or they go to a seminar, or they go to this, they go to that, whatever it is, they have an experience with God, or maybe it's in their prayer closet or whatever, and God shows up and he fills them with his spirit or he, he just comes upon them and something happens and, and now they can do certain things and after that they just think they're good to go for the rest of their life. We know from scripture that that isn't true. The, their, their mistake was in thinking that it was inherent in them, that whatever they had got, that's what they were now. Samson was an example of that. Remember that in the Old Testament? Uh, Samson gets, uh, the Spirit of God comes on him, so he was able to do things that nobody could do. And so Samson, um, um, you know, they could never tie him up, they could never capture him, and he could do incredible feats against his enemies. Had tr the, the Spirit of God was on him, this, that's what the scriptures say. But he had this one thing. <laughs> he, he was supposed to let his hair grow. Now, some teens would uh, really enjoy this part. But he was supposed to allow his hair to grow, and that, as long as it was, it was uncut, he would have the Spirit of God on him. But if he cut it, he would, uh, he would lose his power. But after so many uh, times with this, uh, this woman and stuff, Delilah, and uh, so on and so forth, he decided he, he, didn't, he didn't have to follow that prescription anymore. After all, inherently he was strong. And that's why it's very interesting to me that when, they, when she cries out, the Philistines are upon you, what does he do? He gets up to fight them. He doesn't think that he's lost it, even though he knew that was a prescription. He thought it was inherent in him. This is who I am. I'm Samson the Strong. And I'll always be like this. But what he didn't know was that the Spirit of God had left him that day, and he could not do what he had done before. Is that true? There's a lot of people that uh, get caught in it. The disciples got caught in that exact same trap. They assumed it was now inherent in them and that they didn't need God anymore. They no longer depended prayerfully on God for it, and their failure showed their lack of 
prayer. And that's what upset Jesus. The fact that they couldn't do it meant that the power to do it was not there, and that revealed to him, that's why the comment out of Mark chapter 9, this kind only comes out through prayer. He, he knew that they had not been spending time in prayer, and yet he was modeling it all the time. Does that make sense? Just say yes. Yeah, even if it doesn't, that's okay. You and I have no inherent life or power in us. Using another metaphor of a vine and branches, Jesus said in John chapter 15, 4, Jesus put it in another way. He was often taking metaphors and stories and just changing them and twisting them just so you get a, a different glimpse at the same truth. He would often do that. In John chapter 15, 4, he said, Remain in me, and then what? Help me out. I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you, what is it again? Remain in me. How do we do that? See, Samson didn't remain. The disciples didn't remain. Our power is not inherent. It is only as we are attached to the vine. And we get, and you say, well, how do I attach to the vine? Very simple, in prayer. Very simple. In prayer, that's where we attach. And uh, faith is a wonderful gift to us, isn't it? It is the very thing that drives us to continue when our circumstances tell us differently. So when, when the disciples would be in prayer, they would get faith. But the faith, it, it was multifaceted. But part of it was that it would give them uh, and gives us the desire to do his will. Even in the face of circumstances that tell us that it's absolutely opposite. You know what? There's nothing that discourages people more in the Christian faith than when they, there's problems around and they pray to prayer here and they pray to prayer there and they pray to prayer there and nothing changes. They even took him to a special meeting and they laid hands on and nothing changed. And nothing changed. And so they give up. And so they quit. Listen to me. Faith is not about the power of positive thinking. That's the first thing faith is not. The second thing that faith is not is a certain personality type. <laughs> you know, some of you, are, you, some of you see the glass half full all the time. Are there any of you that see the glass half full pretty much all the time? Okay. And then the rest of you, raise your hands. You're with me. You see it half empty all the time. And you say, oh, yeah, well, I'm one of these that sees a glass half full all the time. And I, I, I got faith. No, it has nothing to do with personality. If you have, if you have a, per, a personality that is a quitting kind of personality that sees it half empty all the time, you're pessimistic and all that kind of stuff, you can have great faith. <sighs> you can. But you get it. In prayer. That's what Jesus is saying here. One of the things that will get you up, you know, uh, early in our marriage, I'm talking really early in our marriage, not on the first hour or two, but um, <laughs> pretty much right after the honeymoon, my wife pretty much figured she had me figured out. And she, one day she looked at me, she's a very uh, direct kind of person, sweet but direct, and she said, you're a quitter. Oh, I did not like that word. I despised that word. But you know what? She always says to me now, uh, she never used that word on me again. Because you know what? When you go into the presence of God, when you go into prayer, he gives you his confidence, not a self-manufactured thing. You cannot get it by like kind of pumping your chest up. You can't do it that way. You do it in prayer. And he gives, you go into prayer and suddenly your whole outlook and your countenance, everything changes. When I, when I got rocked there on, on Tuesday uh, or whatever day, was it Tuesday that we had our prayer seven? Yeah, it was Tuesday. Um, and I got rocked like that, I immediately went to prayer. Because I knew that if I didn't go to prayer, I was 
wow, you were going to have a pretty lousy prayer leader here on Tuesday. I went to prayer immediately, and immediately God began to pour his faith into me. It's very, very important that we get that uh, part straight. Hebrews 11 says, Now faith is being sure, a confidence of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. Being sure of, or a, the guarantee of a transaction, a contract or deed. But you can only get it from God. Because in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Paul recorded, he said, so faith comes from, help me, hearing, and hearing through, it says, uh, the word of Christ. Is that what it says? Yeah, it says the. There is no article in the Greek there. It's an, it's an anarthrous construction, meaning there is no article. You can cross that out. The minute you put an article and say the word there, it's referring to this. It's an anarthrous construction, meaning just a word. Any word that Jesus gives us, whether he speaks to us through this directly or whether he speaks to us in our prayer time, does Jesus speak, yes or no? Yeah, that is a word. And the Greek word behind word in this passage is rhema. It's a spoken word. It's something he speaks to us. And when he speaks it to us, it has life in it. And that's what gives us confidence. When Jesus says, Ray, it's going to be okay, <gasps> peace floods into your soul. Is it true or not? You can't work that thing up. But when he says it's okay, and when he says this is how he gives us his perspective, then it's okay. That's Romans chapter 10. You need faith, hope, and confidence to push through and not to give up. But it is not something you can manufacture. Faith is part of God's divine life communicated through and into you by a word and his presence. You get it from being in the presence of God through prayer. He gives you a picture or he gives you a promise, an encouragement or a directive. And you continue to fight and push through and you don't mope. Listen to me. If, if the reason you've given up in fighting that mountain because you've lost the teenager or whatever, or, or your, uh, uh, you know, your marriage is in trouble, or there's a lost loved one, or uh, your ministry is floundering, and there seems to be opposition on every side, the thing is not to mope. The thing is to go and fall on your knees in the prayer closet. And then he comes in and he speaks, and he shows up with his presence. I don't mean you see a visible image or anything like that. I'm not saying he can't, but I'm saying suddenly his presence is there and it's okay. Is that true? He give, so he does that. But not only will a word or rhema from God give you or his presence give you confidence and hope and encouragement to push through, it will become a powerful weapon at the same time. When God pronounces a word, it actually accomplishes what it says. That's what the prophet Isaiah said. Remember Isaiah 55? He said, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. But not through us sitting around doing nothing, waiting for him to do something. No. We don't go into his presence and then he says, Okay, right, here's a promise for you. <laughs> I'm going to save so-and-so, or I'm going uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm to I'm give victory over this obstacle you're facing here in your ministry. I'm going to give you victory, and now I go, whoo, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Now give me a milkshake. <laughs> but I'm afraid that's what too many Christians think. Oh, he gave me hope and he gave me courage and he encouraged me and he blessed me and he said he's going to do this or that. He's gonna, here's my promise. I'm good to go. <laughs> Let's go party. Not at all. His living word that, accom uh, that, uh, that accomplishes anything that, that it says it will do is often given to us to do something with. Take a look at Ephesians 6, 7, 17. And in Ephesians 6.17, take a look at what Paul said there. This is that whole passage about putting on the armor of God. Take a look at what he says about the sword. Taking the helmet of salvation 
and the sword of the, help me, spirit, which is a word or rhema of God. There it is again. Anarthrus construction, the word rhema behind it, and he says the sword of the spirit, the thing, what do you, by the way, what do you use a sword for? Go ahead, pacifist, tell me. What do you use? <laughs> I, I'm teasing with you, you know that. We love each other, I've been here 18 years. We can have fun, right? But what do you use a sword for? You use it to fight. Use it to, use it to, to, to fight an enemy, not a friend, right? And he says, the thing that you use here in fighting those mountains and moving them, that sword, he's just mixing metaphors here. Do you see that? The mountain is an enemy, the sword of the spirit. But the sword of the spirit is a word from God. Now, how do you, how do you use it, is what you're asking. There it is. Now you and I are to take the word, or this rhema, and wield it like a weapon to take, def uh, to take the def uh, you know, defeat the enemy and take back his spoils, which are people. Many years ago, when uh, uh, one of our children was gone, two of them were away from the Lord for uh, a total period of 12 years, but one of them in particular, uh, the last one, and uh, Fran and I were in, in Vancouver, uh, and we were attending a church in Langley, a, a church of about a thousand or something like that. We were there on a Sunday morning, and they'd, they had a missionary that was very dear to them, and they wanted to pray for him. And so uh, they, they said to the entire congregation, Why let's all get on our knees right there by the pews. They had pews, and we knelt by, uh, by the pews, and we're going to pray for this missionary. I thought it was, very it was very touching. It was a very good thing they, they did. Fran later told me, she got on her knees and said, Well, Lord, <laughs> I don't know this missionary. I mean, I'll send up a prayer for him, but that's not very... You know, that's not that meaningful to me. Is there something you want me to, you know, I'll tell you what's meaningful is my, is my teenager right now. And as she began to pray, remember, now we're in prayer again, she gets this vision or this picture, if you prefer the word. She gets a picture in her mind. And the picture is of our son, and he's covered in black leeches. But what she sees about these leeches, I mean, he's just, totally and completely covered, representing enemies, right? The enemy. She notices that the leeches, she doesn't know what's doing it, but she notices that the leeches are being stretched. They're just hanging on, but they're being stretched away from him. And immediately the Holy Spirit says, you're this close. Don't quit now. We were walking out of the church service, and she said, do you want to want to know what happened to me? I said, what happened? I mean, I was praying for the missionary, and here she gets this picture from God. <laughs> and, she said, and she tells me this picture, and I went, oh my goodness. God has just shown us something about where we're at in this battle. Now, we had been fasting and praying for two years for this particular uh, son, for two years, uh, once a week, uh, uh, for two years, and then a 14-day stretch. We just did 14 days, pray, prayed and fasted for the son. And now the Holy Spirit revealed to her where we were in the fight and that we were almost there. Well, guess what it did? It, it showed us how, how we were supposed to fight. We said, we got to double and triple up our, <laughs> up our prayers. We are close to winning this thing. He, he was saved uh, about a month later. Now, there were others praying as well. We'll get to that. So, what happens practically? Well, first of all, when you're in prayer, we're talking about warfare here in the mountains in your life. You listen in prayer for God's strategies, what to do and not do. I think about, uh, we were praying for one of our kids, again, many years ago, and um, really away from the Lord, and, uh, and uh, I being a man and, uh, you know, the, the wise one. Um, <laughs> Fran was in the first service, you can tell, right? And uh, I, I said, you know, she's rebelling like this. We got to come down harder. You bring down the hammer, right? This isn't working, just double it. She, on the other hand, um, 
being the weaker sex or something. <laughs> I'm kidding. My church, if you're a visitor here, you don't know me and you don't know our church. The, this is all tongue-in-cheek. She said, no, we got to back off. And I said, oh, back off? I think we should just hammer down. She said, I think we should back off. And we had a major disagreement on that issue. We've had an amazing marriage for 40 years, but boy, did we disagree on that one. Well, guess what we did? We took it to prayer. I went to prayer, and I began to say, God, show me. Am I right or am I wrong? If I'm wrong, then I want to change. And he showed it to me through another rebel who's about 23 years old, a man, now married with kids, who had been a rebel and had come out on the, on the right side, loved Jesus now, et cetera, et cetera. And so I was driving with him one day between Toronto and Montreal, and I said to him, how did your father handle it? He said, well, he, was, you know, he came down. And I said, you know, would you, looking back, would you have, you know, do you think he should have come down harder, or do you think he should have backed off? He had no idea what I was asking. He said, well, look, it was my responsibility. I was the rebel, and so I don't... No, I said, I understand, but what do you think might have helped more? He said, well, really, I think it would have been better if he had backed off. And I went, oh, great. <laughs> I went, she's right. I knew God had spoken. He had set the whole thing up. So got to Montreal, phoned her, and I said, honey, you were right. And I said, we're going to back off, and that's what we did. So give strategies. That's the first thing. When you, when you get into prayer and you're fighting this and trying to remove this mountain and, and he gives you a word, the sword of the spirit. Second thing is you pick up the sword and you wield it. You speak against the enemy and his strategies and his assignments, claiming a word given to you in prayer. Remember, it has power. So, for example, I don't know exactly what we said when we were praying those things, but I, pray the, uh, I do similar things uh, in other situations, but I just said, in Jesus' name, I just spoke it out. I said, in Jesus' name, I come against the, uh, the, the powers that have been given assignments against my son or my daughter or whatever the situation was, and I bind you in Jesus' name. I break, your, I, I break your assignment in Jesus' name, and I tell you to go to the place Jesus sends you, that kind of stuff. And I spoke the word because he had given me a word. I didn't just speak whatever I wanted to speak. It comes out of prayer. Does that make sense? Church? It comes out of prayer. It doesn't come out of your head. You just come up with something. You're fighting against the rulers and principalities and powers of the air. What do we know? We can't even see them. But God knows the strategies, doesn't he? And, and, and I remember at that time, we anointed the doors on, in his room with oil, and we prayed over that room and stuff. And there's, there's some incredible stories I could tell you about that. In fact, when we moved from Kleefeld over here into the town, and we were building a house, we got our pastor's prayer partners, Grace, brought a whole group before we moved in to pray through that entire house because some of the battles we, that were raging, and particularly over the room where he was going to be living. And uh, so we do that. And then number three, you double up and triple up your prayers and pray like you've never prayed before. And I talked to you about that already. Elijah had been told that God would send rain. Remember in 1 uh, Kings chapter 18, verse 1? It says, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Yet after, uh, 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 after he had brought fire down from the heaven... He had to pray for the rain. It says, Elijah said to Ahab, go up and eat and drink for there's a sound of rushing of rain. God had said, it's going to rain. Go tell Ahab that. Does he sit back and say, well, let's watch it rain? No. He says, he says so Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down to the earth, and put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, go up now, and look toward the sea, and he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. He said, go again. Seven times he prayed. And at the seventh time he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising above uh, from the sea. And Elijah said, 
go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stops, uh, uh, stops you. And did it ever rain? See the commentary on what happened here in the, in the book of James. James chapter 5 verse 17 says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed, help me church, say the word again, fervently. God had already told him it was going to rain. That's the point. In prayer, you get the word from God, and now he expects you and I to do something about it. And we take that living word that he has given us hope and confidence to push through, and we wield it against the enemy, and then we double up in prayer and triple up in, in I don't know what the number is for seven, but we really pray fervently. <clears throat> you say, why do we have to pray anyway? God wants to do something, why doesn't he just go ahead and do it without us? You know what, we are a fallen, rebellious, and independent people. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, God ties our needs to prayer <clears throat> so that it brings us back into his presence where we should have been all along. He said, you don't have because you don't ask. Okay, then I'm not going to give it to you. When you come back into my presence, then you're going to get something. <laughs> but not before that. Because we are prone to wander, as the hymn writer said. Isn't it true? True? Prone to wander. We, we're, rebe we're rebels at heart. And so God ties the two. And of course, then there's the piece where he just wants us to come and, and be partners with him in this ministry anyway, in ministering to others. And, uh, and now, when you spend time in prayer, not only do you get a living confidence, not only do you get, uh, uh, can you speak against the enemy's assignment and pray into the heavenlies, but number three, you get power that flows into you. He says, draw nigh to me, and I will draw nigh to you. He says he gives grace to the what? James. Humble. Say humble. He gives grace to the humble. Those that humble themselves in his presence, he pours grace. He pours himself into uh, us. And so the third thing that we get, not just a confidence, not just a word with which to speak against the enemy and pray to God, but he also gives us power, though we may not even be aware of it. Moses, for example, he spent time in God's presence. He came down from the mountain, and it says that his face, what did it do? It shone. It shone. He didn't even know it. <laughs> Just from being, it wasn't that Moses was so spiritual. Some people right away wanted to say, oh, that was so, so spiritual. No, it had nothing to do with Moses being spiritual. It had to do with him being close to God. And if, you're, the, you, if you have a big fountain of water, a big massive fountain, there's a bit of wind blowing, <laughs> you know, and you're downwind of that fountain, the closer you get to the uh, fountain, the more you're going to get what? Wet. You're going to get drenched. And the closer you get to God, the wetter you're going to get. Isn't it true? Yeah. I remember uh, February 22nd, 2009, uh, some five years ago, and uh, Fran and I had been in a time of prayer and, and stuff, and then we had been at this place, and there were people were praying over us, and and the Holy Spirit and all the rest of it, came back and <laughs> our faces definitely didn't shine. Well, maybe hers did, but mine certainly didn't. And uh, we were at an encounter. We had, lots, we had done lots of encounter God retreats for five years by then or more. And uh, so we were having an encounter. We got to the Holy Spirit session, and uh, I'll never forget. Uh, it was the last session. It was Holy Spirit session, and at the end, you know, I just went through my little lesson, and then we sang received you know, some song about the Holy Spirit and stuff, and people were asking God to refill them with the Holy Spirit, and, and uh, it was n nothing out of the ordinary. And then I said, if anybody wants to come for prayer, you can come for prayer as well. And a few people came and lined up uh, for me, and a few people came and lined up for Fran, and maybe there were a couple of others. Sometimes there were others that were praying over people too, if there were too many. <clears throat> and the people continued just praying out loud like this, and the music was playing, and it was just very orderly and very, very, very nice and very peaceful, and you could really sense God's presence. So the first person came up to me, and I just said, <clears throat> yes, uh, just whisper in my ear here, well, what can I pray for you for? And this gentleman said, 
whatever it was. I have no idea what it was. And I just put my hand on his shoulder. And, and I, I, I mean, I, I probably didn't say one word. I didn't get to the first word in praying. And all of a sudden, I just felt him crumble underneath me. And I opened my eyes, and the guy was falling to the ground. I thought, what on earth is the matter with him? <laughs> <sighs> and so... He seemed to be fine, so I just left him alone, and I, the other guy stepped over him. <laughs> and, and I said, what can I pray for you for? And uh, he whispered something in my ear, and I just put my hand. I'd done this many, 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 many times before. Put my hand on, on him, and same exact thing. And he fell over. I had to be careful he didn't fall on top of the other guy. <laughs> and, and, you know, then, then I was a little horrified. I turned to my right, and Fran's praying, and then I see... A woman on the floor. I looked at Fran. Her eyes were big. I looked at her. <laughs> like, what is going on? And uh, so then I got a little nervous. I didn't want to pray for anybody. And, <laughs> and just then, I locked eyes with Len, our board chair, and a friend of mine. And so and I, I started waving to him. And, and he, he looks at me. I said, I was afraid, you know, and I thought, I'll just pray for him, but just in case, you know, I, I pray for him. And the person fell over into, we don't, even, we don't even teach that. Just fell over into his arms. He couldn't believe it. He catches this person and puts him down, and he looked at me. <laughs> <sighs> now, what's the point of the story? This point, point of the story is not to say that people are going to fall down all around you. No, 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 no. I believe that the point of the whole story is that there, it's not necessarily something you can see, but it's something that you will be able to perceive in your, as you minister to other people. Lives will, cha will be changed. You won't even be aware of it. You won't feel different. I didn't feel any different than I had ever felt before. I did the exact same thing I'd always done. Before they didn't, now they did. I couldn't explain it. But we had been in prayer. And in prayer, God gives us, there's a certain perceptible power that comes on you. You may not feel it. May not do something to you. But as we spend time with it, it rubs off on other people. Does that make sense? And if not, that's okay. If you have faith that is living like a seed of mustard, you can say to this mountain, move there and it will move. I'm running out of time, but I'm going to just go very quickly into number two because I think it's important. Prayer opens our minds to God's ways. Many Western believers love to read about having faith that moves mountains, but that what they're really infatuated with is God's power to remove all obstacles in life. Now, there are some people who will have, uh, some of you, this, this first part may have been new, but for some, they would just have loved this, but they won't love part, necessarily love part two. They forget that God often calls certain people to suffer. And that is part of a living mustard seed that can move mountains. It's a different way that God does it. You say, oh no, I pray so that I can remove all bad in my life. But look at the context of the story of Jesus' disappointment that they didn't exercise the demon. It's right in this story. Here, Jesus is disappointed with them because they didn't do it because it showed a lack of prayer. They hadn't been in God's presence, so they weren't able to do what they were supposed to do. But now, he says something that the disciples are disappointed in him about. Immediately following that story, look what Jesus says. As they were gathering, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Who is he talking about? Himself. And he will be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. So distressed that Peter, on another occasion when Jesus was talking about this, said, Peter rebuked Jesus for saying it. And Jesus told him to get behind him. Peter was working at cross purposes with God because he didn't understand God's ways. It was a defective, shoddy faith, just like their other faith was shoddy. Sometimes God wants to take people and use people who are suffering to be, and they have faith in the midst of that, that he has called them to this, and that moves stones and boulders. Do you believe that? 
Take John the Baptist for an example. I just mentioned Jesus now. John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. We know that. And he, and, and he died while Jesus was in ministry. And Jesus died by the time he was 33. That means somewhere 31, 32, 33. Somewhere in there, John the Baptist died. You know why he died? A martyr's death. He was arrested by Herod. And uh, through a bet, he, his head was chopped off. He didn't live his three score and ten years, as I sometimes hear people saying. You know, if you just had faith, then you'd live your three score and ten. He didn't get even close to three score and ten years. That's just baloney. But had he served his purpose, Jesus said there hadn't been a greater prophet before John the Baptist. That was Jesus. Did Jesus reprimand him for dying? <laughs> no. Jesus honored him. What was the purpose of John the Baptist? John the Baptist's purpose was to point others to Jesus. Oh, behold the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world. There he is. <clears throat> and, and he had a bunch of disciples. And you know what happened? As soon as he began to say, that is the Lamb of God, that's who you should be following, his church emptied and Jesus' church grew. Is it true? Absolutely. And finally, the Father in heaven said, you're your purpose is finished, John. Thank you. We want you out of the way now because you have fulfilled your purpose. People shouldn't be following you anymore, John. They, many crowds went out to him at the Jordan. Remember that? No more, John. They need to be following Jesus. Thank you for what you've done. And he died a martyr's death. Now, did Jesus approve of what Herod did? No, Herod's going to stand accountable for that just like Pharaoh. But God can take the things that were meant for evil and turn them for his purposes. The same thing <clears throat> if we uh, look at Paul. He was to spend years in, uh, God allowed Paul to spend years in prison and God didn't reprimand Paul for being there. No. It says that Jesus came and stood next to Paul in prison to encourage him. I actually broke down in tears when I typed this part up. When I got to this passage, following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in, in Rome. Did he say, you've got a shoddy faith for being in prison, uh, Paul? Is that what he said? Church? No. He said, Paul, take courage. He said, that's the kind of faith in the middle of suffering. And what was the whole purpose? He tells what the purpose was. He said, uh, you've testified to the rulers in Jerusalem, but the empire leaders, the Roman Empire, they will not, uh, if you call them up and you want an appointment with them, they will not see you. So I'm going to allow you to be arrested. And if you're arrested, you will stand before them in trial, and then you can testify. Amen? And then he testified. It's absolutely incredible. And Anna, the prophetess Anna, she lost her husband after only seven years of marriage. How difficult is that? And then she fasted and prayed till she was 84 every day in the temple. Would she have done that if she had a husband and kids? Yes or no? No, she wouldn't have been able to. Is it because she's unspiritual? No. It's because she would have had other duties. So God said, I'm going to take your husband home now. And this is what I'm calling you to do. Anna, can, do you trust me with that? Do you have that kind of living faith, Anna, to do that? Can you do that for me? Anna said, plant me in the hard place you want, Lord Jesus, and I'll be like that living mustard seed, and I'll move rocks. And she did with her prayers, and it was, she was one of those that prayed Messiah in. Yeah. That takes faith too. In fact, that's a huge faith. We have, uh, we have such an Anna in our church. I was praying one day, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, you have an Anna in your church. And I said, who, Lord? He said, Grace Fast is one of those Annas. And one day I was sitting with her, and I, I looked at her, and I said, I mean this in the right way, Grace. I believe the Lord told me, you are our Anna. 
thank you for thank you for your willingly taking a loss. She had three kids when her husband died at 40. She, but one day she was talking to me and she said, she said, Pastor Ray, uh, she said this to me not that long ago, actually, just a few months ago. And the way she summed it, I, c- I couldn't believe it. She said, the reason, and I've told this story before, I won't tell it now, but the reason the Lord allowed Fran to have 10 surgeries was to get the church praying. I've often told that story. That takes faith. The reason he took my husband, she said, was so that the pastor of prayer, the one that would be called to be pastor of prayer, would get praying. You see, when Reg was dying of cancer, Grace started praying. Oh, she prayed fervently up and down a runway because he was a pilot. And she prayed and prayed. And then, just days before he passed away, the Lord spoke to her and said, Grace, don't pray for me to heal him anymore. I want to take him home. She didn't understand why. But she trusted him. She said, okay, then you take him. And a few days later, he was gone. Weeks and months later, she's sitting beside her bed. And... She's praying in the morning, and she says, Lord, you know, when Reg was alive, but he was dying, I really fell in love with prayer. I had something to pray for, and I really loved coming into your presence. And this was amazing, but now what do I do? And then the Holy Spirit spoke to her and said, Grace, phone Ray, and he will tell you what to do. Now, I didn't, I didn't know any of this till years later. And she phoned me one day and she said, how can I help you? And I said, oh, I know exactly how you could help me. And this was in the old building. And I, she said, how? I said, help me in the prayer ministry. And she said, okay, I will. A year later, she was the coordinator of the pastor's prayer partners and you saw the things at the beginning of the thing. She became this Amazing pastor of prayer with, over, with now 265 vo- trained volunteer prayer ministers in this church. It's an incredible story. See, faith isn't just faith so you have power to just go and hammer everything. Yes, sometimes it is that. Sometimes that's exactly what it is. But sometimes, as you spend time in prayer, God looks at a few chosen ones and says, Okay, do you think you can handle this assignment? This one's much tougher than wielding a sword. This one, you're going to have to do the suffering and the dying. Are you willing to do it? It's going to move rocks. It's going to move mountains. Do you think it's having an impact here at Southland, our prayer ministry, yes or no? (sighs) It's going to move mountains. (laughs) Are you willing to step up to the plate? Can you trust me with that? That happens in prayer. Amen? That's where it happens. I have to wrap up. So, this is what I'd like you to do. Take your cards. There's four corporate prayer requests that we have for 2014. You see them there. I'm not going to go through them. Camp ownership, growth of church, renewal ministry. Uganda, <clears throat> our ministry in Uganda, and the get out of debt uh, that we're going to do. Uh, the giving has been just amazing. And I cannot comment on this. I did this at the prayer summit already, and I will again uh, at our next prayer summit, which is not this Tuesday, but the following Tuesday. But flip it over to the other side. These are the things that we're going to be praying about every week and throughout the entire year, and we're going to see God move big things. And there's our prayer summits. We already had the uh, New Year's Eve one, January 14th, which was advertised, and then the 26th, which is when Church Renewal Weekend is. And uh, I want you to take these cards, and I want you to pray about them. Take them home. And I'm asking, I did in the first service, I'm calling all cell leaders to take these cards to the cell meetings and have your cell members spend a good portion of time listening in prayer about about this, what God wants you to do. There's a Friday night prayer time, January the 10th, from 9 to midnight. 
and Wednesday morning prayer uh, every, mor uh, every Wednesday morning this month, 6.30 to 7.30. And then every Tuesday this month, we, I'm calling a church-wide food fast. That means day after tomorrow. Eat well today. All right? And during that time, we're going to pray these things plus the things, the mountains in your life. Okay? And, uh, and uh, so that's what we're going to do this month. Church, are you with me in this? Yeah, we're going to move some mountains together. I have to close. Holy Spirit, we just ask you to move in January of 2014 and throughout this entire year. Help us to move mountains. In Jesus' name, amen.